0: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined on film as well as on radio by Professor Francis Fukuyama, whose new book is Liberalism and Its Discontents. Um, Professor Fukuyama, welcome. Now, liberal is a word that, as you acknowledge in your introduction, means something very different in, say, Tennessee than it does in Muswell Hill. What exactly are the parameters of what you call classical liberalism, that's the subject
1: of this book? Uh, Sure, it does have a very different meaning in the United States than it does in Europe. Uh, My definition of it is closer to the European one. Liberalism, uh, in my view, is a system that's basically a limitation of power based on a rule of law and a constitutional framework that limits the power of uh, executives. It's based on a number of philosophical presumptions. There's an element of universalism because liberals believe that all human beings have an equal set of rights, that these need to be protected by governments. In Europe, you know, liberal parties have been associated with a kind of center-right position that emphasizes property rights and rule of law, and that's an important part of classical liberalism. But I would say that It doesn't really dictate any set of economic policies so that, for example, Scandinavia over the last couple of generations has been governed by social democratic parties that do a lot of redistribution, but I would regard these all as liberal parties essentially because they all respect uh, basic individual rights they tax at a higher rate than, you know, other countries. But I don't think that that's part of my definition of liberalism. So it really does have to do with that foundation of respect for law and respect for limits to government power.
0: Yeah. And that, that idea that you can, you know, essentially you can be in a liberal society and provided it's electorally endorsed, mm-hmm. you can, you know, draw the line economically on the size of the state wherever you like. hmm I mean, you do draw a distinction quite early in the book between liberalism and democracy. I and mean, we talk about liberal democracy in a single breath. Right. But you do draw an analytic distinction between the, those two things, don't you? you no,
1: know, I think that's necessary. I think that liberalism and democracy have been allies for much of the last, you know, 100 years, but they're not the same thing. So you could have a democratically elected government that doesn't respect liberal limitations on power. And I'm afraid, you know, that's really what's going on in Hungary right now, where Viktor Orban is legitimately elected. But he's used that uh, mandate, that electoral mandate, to basically corral the media, you know, turn over properties and and control of a lot of the economy to cronies of his. And he's explicitly endorsed, you know, what he calls illiberal democracy, where you're not going to respect the rights of individuals to the same extent as other Truly liberal countries in the rest of Europe, and he does that with a certain democratic uh, mandate. And I think this is true of a lot of right-wing populists these days. You know, from uh, Erdogan in Turkey to Donald Trump in the United States, they all do get elected democratically, but they are not, you know, respecters of liberal limitations on uh, their own power.
0: Would you characterize that as a democracy that's continuing to be a democracy that's illiberal or Is it essentially, you know, once we've got the power through democratic means, Mm -hmm. we're rolling back the foundation? I mean, can an illiberal democracy be stable or is it essentially a contradiction in terms
1: of... I don't think it can be stable over the long run because the first thing that these illiberal Democrats do is to try to change the electoral laws so that they will never be removed from power. So Orbán has done that in Hungary. He's done a lot of gerrymandering of electoral districts to make sure that his Fidesz party... Uh, really has a big advantage, despite whatever the popular vote may say. And it's been going on in the United States. I think the Republicans at a state level have been changing the rules, uh, actually the the rules for counting votes, such that, you know, if we have a closely contested election in 2024, they would actually be able to override a popular will because they would award the right to assign... You know, we've got this very... Strange system in the United States where we don't elect presidents by popular vote. We we have this electoral college, and they want to be able to control that so that, yes, they will be able to override democratic choice uh, in the future. So I do think that there's a good reason why liberalism and democracy are closely allied with one another. Uh, I think that if you only have democracy it tends to erode liberalism, and then that tends to erode you know, democracy itself. Yeah. Now,
0: this idea of erosion is kind of fundamental to the book, I think, because the book is a sort of saying you know, where we're going wrong or where liberalism is under threat. And you see it, as I understand, it, it's threatened both on the left and the right, as you see it, but are those, those threats symmetrical and are those threats effectively arising from the same... Conception of liberalism, or are they? Um
1: I, I think that they come from uh, different sources, but they are feeding off of one another. And so, as people push the boundaries of liberalism, you know, to uh, extreme on the right or the left, it stimulates the other side, you know, to push in a similar uh, direction. But the the problems are really different. So I think on the right, really, what happened was the. Uh, Expansion of the notion of liberalism during the 1980s and 90s to something that's now called neoliberalism. Sometimes neoliberalism is just a synonym for capitalism, but I think that, you know, more accurately, it was a kind of ideology that worshiped markets and denigrated the state to the point that it began to erode. A lot of state institutions and led to a, a kind of globalization that looked at economic efficiency as the be-all and end-all of you know of life, and that began to erode people's incomes. It permitted you know the growth of a great deal of uh, inequality uh, across the world. It eroded the state's ability to regulate uh, the activities of you know large corporations and especially in the financial sector. I think, was directly responsible for the big financial crisis in 2008 because, you know, the deregulation of that sector permitted these big banks to take, you know, unconscionable risks and it hurt ordinary people. And so this uh, was a development on the right that then stimulated the growth of the left because people looked at this and they said, this is, you know, unacceptable that we get this degree of inequality. Uh, And that's really what launched, you know, the progressivism that you now see across the developed world. Although the
0: progressivism that, that you're specifically concerned about in this book isn't, if I'm kind of paraphrasing mm-hmm. you right, isn't the economic one, right. but an identitarian one. I mean, the, the sort of backlash against neoliberalism yeah. globally could be seen as, as almost a kind of traditional Marxist position. Yeah, so I'm I actually,
1: you know, I, I'm all in favor of a lot of traditional social democratic policies. I, I actually think that especially in the United States, we need more redistribution. Because I think that liberalism needs to be tempered by democracy, that is to say, by some equalization of outcomes, because liberalism by itself produces too much inequality. So I'm... I'm so is
0: that we've got illiberal democracies, yeah. but there's also the anti-democratic liberalism. That's that right.
1: That's about. right. So that's fine. Uh, I think, however, that you know, what what's defined the left has shifted a lot, and it's shifted for understandable reasons, not to be based on these broad categories like social class, as Karl Marx had it, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, but to see inequality in terms of the specific injustices done to racial minorities, to immigrants, to women, to gays and lesbians, to transgender people. And so, in a sense, the understanding of inequality has shifted. And you know, I, I want to be understood here. You know, this was understandable, and and it was a necessary shift in the understanding of inequality because there are different forms of marginalization that take place in liberal societies, and those specific abuses needed to be dealt with, but. It also had consequences in, in the way that people thought about the society and ended up becoming a general critique of liberalism and the liberal individualism that kind of underlies, you know, liberal thought. And that's really, I think, where the problem comes up.
0: And is your position that within the ambit of trad-capital liberalism, it is possible to produce redresses for the injustices you describe without, if you like, you know, removing that, idea of individualism that that's central to
1: no of course i mean anyone that thinks that liberal societies haven't reformed themselves in really major ways over the last you know 150 years just hasn't been paying attention i mean we had slavery in the united states you know and for all that in the u.s uh, there are still huge disparities in outcomes for african americans uh, versus white americans There's no question that there's been a tremendous amount of, you know, of economic and social advance. And it's not a complete process. But that doesn't, I think, speak to the core of liberalism that still maintains that there's a human essence that needs to be protected by rights uh, and needs to be protected, you know, regardless of the racial, gender, you know, sexual orientation of the individual involved. Yeah.
0: Now, you you mentioned human essence, and that you know, to go right back down to the beginning of liberalism, you discuss, you know, Kant and, and later Rawls mm-hmm, as a mm-hmm. sort of, ep- of Kant, which, are, you know, posits some quite sort of theoretical, a priori, mm-hmm. abstract underpinnings for liberalism. Absolutely. But, you know, and it is a sort of very universalist creed, I think you'd agree. But, you know, as you also pointed out, you know, it does have a very historically specific origin yes. you know as 150 years of religious war in western europe
1: mm-hmm.
0: is it something that can transcend that origin and become as abstract as and as universal as we mm-hmm. think it is or mm-hmm. is the, you know because i think one of the critiques of liberalism that's sometimes made is it's very you know specific to the west it's very right. you know it can't escape its historical origins
1: no that's uh, that's true i think that in fact it goes even back further uh, beyond those wars of religion into something that's very deep within the judeo-christian tradition you know in the book of genesis uh, adam and eve are expelled from the garden of eden because uh, they make the wrong choice they eat the the forbidden fruit and i think that that story embeds a certain notion of human agency that human beings have the power to decide between good and evil And that moral autonomy is really the basis of a liberal understanding. I mean, that's really what holds the human race together is that ability to make choices between right and wrong. And the specific definition of right and wrong may vary culturally, but that's something that, you know, in liberal theory, all human beings have. And as the centuries roll by, that gets expanded into our current You know, democratic understanding of human universality that all people have a right to make basic choices in their lives, you know, where they live, how they should live, uh, who they're going to marry, what kind of occupations they'll follow. And it, you know, eventually comes to entail things like a right to vote because you also should have a right to equal political power, at least equal access to the political system. So, yes, it is something that's historically. Nurtured in Western thought goes back a very, very long ways. But the question, I think, is really uh, is it something that actually only people that grow up in that cultural tradition prize, or is it something that actually a lot of other people from other cultural traditions may partake in? And I think, you know, the experience of uh, the spread of these ideas outside of the West indicates that, yeah, there is maybe something. You know, truly forms right, yeah.
0: yeah. Um now again one among the critiques of liberalism, and it's one that I think you seem to compass in this book, is that it's very good, as sometimes we said, for democracy, more for what it prevents than for what it enables. Right. the two two planks again, I correct me if I'm mis misunderstanding you, of the difficulty of liberalism is that it doesn't it has a very good way of arbitrating between competing notions of the good, but it's not very good at coming up with a notion of the good in and of itself. Right. And the second one is that it, it has trouble dealing with nations and right. those, you know, the sort of essential social human groupings in which it it works. Are those systemic problems with liberalism? And I mean, it sort of begs the question is liberalism enough if it won't account for those two?
1: No, that's, that's absolutely correct. So the essence of liberalism is to say, look, we cannot agree on the good life as defined, let's say, by a religious tradition. If we insist that our politics should be built around a single religion, we're going to end up fighting each other, as Europe did, you know, after the Protestant Reformation. And so, we're going to lower the sights of politics to say that we want to survive, uh, live peacefully among one another and agree to disagree about those ultimate uh, things and that means that you're not going to get a tightly bound religious community of the sort you know of let's say John Calvin's Geneva but that's that's not a bug that's a feature of liberalism, but it does mean that if you want a strong sense of community, you're probably not going to get it in a liberal society. I think that, the attraction that people have to feel about liberal societies really has to do more with freedom and the ability to, you know, make uh, what you want of your own life, you know, this ability not to be told by uh, either your priest or the government, you know, how how you ought to live. And that's something that people can take pride in. The second issue you mentioned really does have to do with the nation. uh, And I think that is also a problem because liberals believe that all human beings have equal rights and that those rights need to be protected by governments, I think that you can actually reconcile liberal theory with the actual existence of nations because those rights need to be protected by actually a state. Uh, you know, state is really the locus of power in the modern world, and states necessarily have limits on whose rights they can protect. And so if you live in a liberal society, it has an obligation to protect the rights of the citizens of that society. Also, people living in the society that are not citizens uh, have rights as well at a slightly lower level than, than actual citizens who have the right to vote and, and, and so forth. But, you know, the way the world is organized, that state does not have the obligation to protect the rights in countries, you know, a thousand miles away. And in fact if they try to do that that's also going to lead to a pretty chaotic world where states are able to use force you know way outside of their territorial jurisdictions so that's why i think the nation and liberal theory you know need to come together the other thing is that in a liberal society People need to have a source of community and mutual identification. And the nation still remains a pretty strong source of that. And you just go to an Olympics and, and watch people, you know, cheering for their own country. And I think that, you know, that's an important identification that needs to be kept liberal, meaning to say you can't build a nation around race, around religion, around some fixed value. Well you can. But well you can, yeah, and that's been the source of problems, right? So yeah. that's really what we're facing in contemporary Russia, that they've got this one I you know notion of what Russian national identity is that's not compatible with, you know, multiple other ethnic identities within their own, you know, within their own society. You know, it's an uneasy compromise in a sense, you know, between liberal ideals of universal, you know, human equality and the need for nations, but I think it's one that can actually be reconciled in practice.
0: I'm wondering how much the that idea that there is a sort of communitarian underpinning to the liberal dispensation in any given nation state how that's been affected, whether undermined or you know improved by globalization. I mean in the sense that you know, when you've been talking about neoliberalism and the difficulties of, of you know, allowing inequality to run riot, it's mm-hmm. it's much harder to create, I guess, a juridical framework in which, you know, inequality can be reined in by the democratic process, by, you know, antitrust laws and so on. Mm-hmm. When you've got capital and, for that matter, the, the companies that run it mm-hmm. are so international they're outside the reach of any given state's laws. I mean, is, right. is that not a, something that causes you to... No, because sure. That's no, that's, it,
1: it has been a big problem that, because the globalization brought about by, you know, what I would call neoliberal ideology has put economic efficiency at the summit of all social goods, uh, it necessarily erodes other objectives that a democratic community may, you know, want to pursue. So this is clearest in in terms of environment, where a lot of the global trade laws have actually gotten in the way of environmental enforcement. Because, you know, according to the the free traders, you know, these are simply political obstacles that are meant to be protectionist rather than, you know, serving other ends. And I don't think that that's uh, an acceptable understanding of the way democratic communities have a right to you know, determine their own futures. So economic efficiency should be one social good among, you know, others. And it really ought to be up to democratic communities to determine the priority, the relative priority, let's say, of environmental protection against economic uh, efficiency.
0: And how, I mean, obviously, democratic communities can make those decisions, but when the problems are global, when the the money moves globally, Mm -hmm. it's much harder for them to do that. Sure. Do you, how much sort of stock do you place in the international institutions, which I guess are our best attempt to regulate those problems? That would be the UN, the international right. military
1: alliances, the EU, so forth. I mean, well, there's such a variety of international institutions that it's impossible to generalize. Uh, I think the United Nations has been a failure in terms of regulating security just because of the nature of the Security Council, that whenever you get a dispute between two of those five members, you you don't get any kind of action uh, whatsoever. And I think that's been repeatedly demonstrated. On the other hand, you know, there are other areas like public health, where the World Health Organization actually plays a pretty important role in coordinating responses to things like global pandemics, uh, you know. It it didn't do an adequate job during COVID, but it's much better that it existed than it, than it doesn't. And then the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, you know, also play important roles in regulating, you know, a lot of our economic lives and especially the lives of you know poorer countries. So it really depends. You know, in the security realm, NATO I think is really an important institution worked during the Cold War, and I think it's working today uh, in light of the, the challenge posed by Russia. But I think that, you know, especially global warming has led a lot of people to say that, you know, the entire universe of existing institutions, because they are based on nation states, will not be adequate to meet the challenges uh, and needs to be replaced by something more resembling global government. And that, I think, is is a dangerous idea because at a nation-state level, we have developed institutions that balance the power of the state with instruments of constraint. That's what the rule of law is. It, It basically says, if you have executive authority, there are certain things you cannot do to violate individual rights or to act against commonly accepted laws, and they have to be democratically legitimated. And anybody that says that we need to replace the existing Nation state based type of cooperation with some form of global governance really has to explain how you would limit the actions of a global executive, you know, through law or through, uh, you know, democratic legitimacy. And we have no idea how to do this. You know, uh, the idea that the United States and China and Europe can all agree on, you know, a common set of Laws and rules and then delegate serious, coercive power to this organisation, you you just try to imagine that and you you realise why that's not going to happen. Also, I
0: suppose, as we've seen again and again, you know, mature liberal democracies kind of have to be rooted in a set of customs and conditions and structures. Now, right back at the foundation of liberalism, the aspects of it that you describe as being really kind of basic which is the idea of individual worth and individual power of choice and human dignity, you know, it seemed, seemed very closely and intellectually, obviously naturally allied to the idea of property rights and the economic boons and the market, free right. market implications that that have. Yet, you know, at the moment, we find ourselves and have for some years in a situation where it seems that, you know, on what we've tended to call the left, there's been a general interest ideally in in sort of expressive individualism, in in social liberty, and much less enthusiasm for economic liberty, and on the right, very often vice versa, you know, conservatives. Mm -hmm. Why is it that that peculiar bifurcation seems to have happened, given that, you know, originally those two things seem to go very obviously together to the original theorists? of.
1: Well, I think you know, they simply appeal to different social classes in a certain way. You know, the defense of property rights, the economic liberalism was always associated with a kind of rising middle class, right? The liberal party in Britain in the 19th century was really the expression of the, you know, the commercial bourgeoisie that had arisen, you know, in the 19th century and emphasized property rights over other kinds of, you know, they were not actually in favor of necessarily expanding the franchise and that sort of thing. The left was really defined by the the desire for people that were not part of that system to break their way into it. And that really defined the politics of the left and right through much of the 20th century. And I think it continues to this day where you know you have a progressive left that is defined by their desire to expand individual autonomy in, you know, a whole variety of cultural ways and a right that continues to emphasize, you know, property and, and, you know, economic rights. And I think that part of the problem we've had is that both of those sides took those ideas which were at base, you know, liberal and expanded them into something that, you know, really began to challenge the liberal order as a whole.
0: Yes. Is there anything in the if you like, in the writ of the liberal law that might limit... Because you say quite often, you know, in, in, on both sides you say, I think you know they've taken these, this basically sound idea to mm-hmm. extremes. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, if you like, in liberal theory or in the, the history of liberalism that would, would draw that line between what would be considered reasonable and what would be extreme? I mean, can you... Kind well, of there,
1: do- there are several things. So in terms of the economic liberalism... I don't think liberalism has ever been sufficient by itself as I said it really needs to be paired with democracy and so if you don't temper a liberal economy with a political mechanism for some degree of redistribution you're you're not going to get stability there'll be too much inequality people will regard the system as illegitimate and they'll rise up you know against it I think that on the other side the real limitation is you know people's need for community turns out that identity politics that tries to say that the liberal order is really wrong and that we're all just rooted in these you know racial ethnic gender categories fail to generate you know any sense of patriotism any sense of you know loyalty to a broader uh, society where people feel that they have a you know a stake in a in a common nation do uh, they
0: do they feed though emotionally, on loyalty to that identity group? I mean, are they kind of replacing nation with, say, Well, they'll
1: never, they'll never succeed in doing that because, you know, the tendency is towards fragmentation. And, uh, you know, for that reason, I think that progressive parties that have moved in that direction just never get any kind of electoral success because people still feel this loyalty to, you know, nation, and they feel that liberals really care much more about people in distant countries than they do about their own fellow citizens. And so that becomes an automatic limitation in, you know, the political success of, of that understanding of uh, identity politics. Yeah. Now, you write, and I, I'd like to just
0: read the passage. So I get your face right, but it, you know, you're talking at the moment about this, the attacks and the the crumbling, if you like, of a of a sort of clear idea of liberalism, and you write here to speaking about. The you, know, you say, people who've experienced violence, war and dictatorship long to live in liberal societies, Europeans did in the period after 1945. But as people get used to a peaceful life under a liberal regime, they tend to take that peace and order for granted and start longing for politics that would direct them to higher ends. And I think you say, you know, we're perhaps at a similar point in human history. Do you think that's where we are now? Do you think that essentially too long a peace leads us to
1: war. Uh, you know uh, this harks back to something I said. You wrote and, this book before the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah so. I did I did and but it, it harks back to something that was in the last uh, couple of chapters of the end of history and the last man where I said that there is this side of the human personality that the Greeks called thumos. It's the uh, the pridefulness and the desire for respect that sometimes conflicts with your rational pursuit of self interest. And that one of the problems in a liberal society is that it doesn't give you a source of striving for higher ends if you simply have peace and prosperity. And I think that you can see this both on the left and the right today, where in the United States we had this case, you know, that we we're having a lot of dis- disputes over mask wearing and vaccination mandates. And this group of parents showed up at a local school board meeting wearing, wearing Stars of David, saying that their requirement to get vaccinated and to wear masks was like Hitler's treatment of the Jews. And I think that's a perfect example of, you know, in a certain sense, complacency. You're living in a liberal society. The government is not asking very much of you. But even the slightest imposition on your individual freedom, you know, you compare to the worst tyrannies of, of previous ages. And you can only do that in a society... That's really forgotten what real tyranny is like. And I think that one of the things that has happened with Putin's invasion of Ukraine is to remind people what real tyranny looks like. You know, it isn't a mask mandate. It's basically having your city relentlessly bombed, you know, because, you know, somebody doesn't like your national identity. That's what real tyranny looks like.
0: Yes. I mean, to to move on to Ukraine, actually, there's... You know, a lot of the conversations we've been having, you know, in the media has been saying, you know, this is, you know, a crunch point. This is the front line of the war of liberalism against tyranny or autocracy. I'm wondering, do you think that's that's right without qualification? I mean, do you see the the Ukrainians essentially as fighting on behalf of an idea, or are they fighting for thumos? Are they fighting for a nationalism or a sense of their homeland?
1: Well, look it it's uh, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I actually have been uh, spending a lot of time in Ukraine over the last seven, eight years and have lots of Ukrainian friends. And, you know, they're doing it out of, I mean, nobody does one or the other. Everybody fights for their independence and sovereignty, even if you don't live in a democracy. But in Ukraine, I do think that uh, people have appreciated the fact that they're living in a free society. They can criticize the government. They can say what they want, and they want to defend that right, and they don't want Putin to take it away from them. Uh, and so, you know, what they're doing is is a combination both of, you know, patriotic defense of their sovereignty and it's a fight for, you know, higher ideals. And I think that to the extent that, you know, it's a mixture of the both, that all of us have an interest in, in supporting that because, you know, that Broader liberal democratic order is really, I think, what's at stake in this in this current war. It's not a war just about this country, Ukraine. It's it's really the attempt to roll back the entire expansion of the realm of liberal democracy that took place after nineteen ninety one and the collapse of the of the former Soviet Union.
0: Yeah. I mean, parenthetically, you do mention Ukraine in the book, and you mm-hmm. say because you've obviously been working in the Ukraine with you know scholars of. Liberalism and democratic institutions. You said that it's, it's got the, it has or had before the invasion the most complete sort of oligarchic control of the media, yeah, mm-hmm. or anywhere in the world, which was very surprising to me mm-hmm. because I, I mean certainly, you know, having paid attention to Ukraine more more recently, you had the impression it was this extraordinarily pluralistic mm-hmm. liberal democracy.
1: No, that's uh, that's true. I mean, the big problem in in Ukraine prior to the war was corruption. And the corruption came from the fact that much of the economy was owned by you know, six or seven oligarchs that were a kind of byproduct of the way the Soviet Union collapsed. What's remarkable is that uh, that structure has really crumbled now. And Ukraine has experienced a kind of birth of a nation that really would not have been possible but for the uh, invasion. So the oligarchs have all fled. Uh, their properties are being confiscated or destroyed. Confiscated you know, by the Russians? Confiscated yeah, confiscated by, by the Russians, by the West really. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, like Renat Akhmetov, who was the big kind of pro-Russian oligarch in uh, eastern Ukraine, just had his largest steel factory bombed by the Russians. Uh, and he was so, pro-Russian? Yeah, he was. He tended to be pro-Russian, you know, before the uh, before the invasion. None of the Russian speakers, as far as I can see, have any sympathy now for Russia, given what they've done in Kharkiv and other you know, Russian-speaking uh, well, areas. Were these
0: are generally Rus- Russian speakers? No, no, they're, no, they're no, they were divided. You know, right. I mean,
1: right. some were based in eastern Ukraine, some in western Ukraine, so there was a variety. But I think that that whole earlier division has really been replaced by an extraordinary sense of national uh, unity, around Zelensky and around the idea of a, you know, of a free Ukraine. So, you know, Vladimir Putin is, I think, going to be remembered as one of the fathers of the Ukrainian nation, you know, when this is all, (laughs) uh, you know, over with. And
0: Zelensky, who, you know, most of us have come to consciousness of as a, you know, sort of war hero, president, you know, um, how did you rate him before all this happened? I mean, you're obviously someone who understands Ukrainian politics pretty well. Was he hmm. deeply implicated with these oligarchs?
1: Was he ruling by permission of them? Was he- uh, to a much less extent than other Ukrainian politicians. He had been linked at the time of his election to uh, Kolomoysky, who was one of the oligarchs uh, who owned the TV station where uh, Zelensky's show Servant of the People Originally aired, and there had been a lot of you know suspicion that he was acting on Kolomoysky's uh, behalf. I think that after he became elected, he proved that that actually wasn't true. You know, they continued to act against uh, Kolomoysky's interest. There was a big bank, pri- uh, you know, reversal of a privatization that they were trying to contest, and he didn't manage to do that. And I think that you know the thing that was remarkable about Zelensky was that he was the outsider candidate that was elected over other candidates that were much more representative of oligarchic interests by an incredible margin which indicated that you know the Ukrainian people as a whole really wanted an outsider that wasn't connected to any of the existing corrupt elite what happened after he was elected was that those same oligarchs then tried to corrupt you know the parliamentarians in his own party and so there's a continuing struggle but I think to a much greater extent than previous politicians uh, you know, Zelensky was free of that kind of oligarchic control So his
0: being elected in the first place would be you'd say an instance of liberalism and the rule of law? No right? absolutely democracy, and, yeah.
1: and democracy and something that would be completely impossible in Russia for example yeah.
0: Francis Fukuyama thank you very much indeed for your time
1: Thank you for talking to me
0: listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.